turn for our scripture reading this morning to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come, and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood, is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should suffer, that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. We read the word of God that far this morning. We consider the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism too in Lord's Day 29. When we considered Lord's Day 28, we only looked at the first two questions and answers. So we begin by looking at question 77. Where has Christ promised that he will as certainly feed and nourish believers with his body and blood as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup? In the institution of the supper, which is thus expressed, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. This promise is repeated by the Holy Apostle Paul, where he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, because we are all partakers of that one bread. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ. Why then doth Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely, not only thereby to teach us that as the bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life, but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him, and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction 
for our sins to God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a striking fact when you read through the Gospels that our Lord Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, rarely spoke about the covenant of grace, but he mostly spoke about the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you have a proper theology, then you know that when Christ spoke about the kingdom of heaven, he was also speaking about the covenant of grace. Because the covenant takes the form of a kingdom. Therefore, you're not so troubled by the fact that the covenant is one of the outstanding themes of Scripture, and yet Jesus just doesn't seem to speak that much about it. At least he doesn't mention it by name very often. But then it becomes fascinating when you turn to the institution of the Holy Supper and you find that that night when Jesus was gathered in the upper room with his disciples, when they celebrated the last Passover feast and he instituted the first Lord's Supper celebration, he mentions the covenant. He speaks of the bread and the wine in the context of the covenant. He took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup of wine and he passed it to them and he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is my blood of the New Testament. Or this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. He mentions the New Testament. And as many of you might recall, the Greek word for testament is the ordinary word for covenant in Scripture. So we could translate this blood, this cup is my blood of the New Covenant or the new covenant in my blood. And we're going to see this morning that Jesus most certainly had in mind the covenant of grace when he instituted the Holy Supper. But we're also going to see that the covenant of grace includes the testament of the Lord. And that the word testament is also significant. We have to understand what that word means too. And that Jesus certainly also had that in mind when he called the cup his blood of the New Testament. So let's consider these things together under the theme, the cup of the New Covenant in Christ's blood. Notice, first of all, that he presents the cup as a sign and seal of the Savior's blood. In the second place, a sign and seal of the New Covenant. And finally, a sign and seal of the New Testament. When Jesus took bread and broke it and said to his disciples, This is my body which is broken for you, and then took the cup of wine and said, Drink ye all of it, this is my blood of the new covenant, Jesus did not mean to say 
that in the Lord's Supper, the bread changes into his very body and the wine changes into his very physical blood as Rome teaches. The Catechism has dispelled that notion for us very clearly. We have already considered that in a past sermon in greater depth. We're not going to go into depth on that this morning, but we simply remind ourselves that in the supper, the bread does not change into his body or the wine into his blood. Rather, Jesus presents the bread, the broken bread, as a sign and seal of his broken body and the poured wine as a sign and seal of his shed blood of the new covenant. A sign and seal of the blood that he would shed for us on the cross to confirm the new covenant of grace and to give us a place in that new covenant. When Jesus held that cup of wine and said, This is my blood of the new covenant, Jesus was alluding to all of the blood that was shed in the old covenant. All of the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and doves and other animals that was shed in the days of old and that flowed from ancient times all the way up to that night when he said those words. He was alluding to all of that blood that was shed as a type pointing forward to his blood that was about to be shed on the cross for the establishment of the new covenant. The blood of the old covenant began to flow in the very beginning of history. Immediately after Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, the blood began to flow. Because God searched them out and God promised them that he would renew the covenant that they had fallen out of by their sin and that he would do that in his grace. God had originally established his covenant with Adam and Eve in the very moment when he created them. And so we could call it a covenant of creation that he made with Adam and Eve. He made them in his own image and in his own likeness, in covenant with himself. But when they sinned, they fell out of that covenant. They lost that covenant. And God came to them and he promised to put enmity between the woman and the serpent and thereby to renew his covenant with them, but now not as a covenant of creation. Now it will be a covenant of grace. A covenant through the shedding of blood of a Savior who must come for them. And God himself was the first to shed blood when he took animals and slaughtered them there in the Garden of Eden. He shed their blood and took the skins of those animals and wrapped them around Adam and Eve as a picture that blood must be shed. The blood of others must be shed for you to be in covenant with me because you are sinners. And only in the way of the shedding of blood can sinners be in covenant with the Lord. 
Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, and as you know, Cain and Abel both brought a sacrifice to the Lord, but God hated the sacrifice of Cain, and he received the sacrifice of Abel because Abel offered his sacrifice by faith in the understanding that he was a sinner who could only be in covenant with God through the shedding of blood. And so Abel took one of his precious little lambs, a firstling of his flock, and he shed the blood of that lamb and offered it up as a sacrifice to God by faith and in the hope of the future Savior who would come to shed his blood so that he could be in covenant with God. Noah also understood this. Noah and his family who lived in that wicked and corrupt world and God had grace upon them and established his covenant with them and took them into the ark and sent the flood of waters that carried the ark out of the old world and into a new world. And when that ark rested on the mountains of Ararat and Noah and his family and the animals came out of the ark, Noah understood very well what had just happened, that God had redeemed them from destruction through the floodwaters that pointed to the blood. And he understood full well, too, that he could only be in covenant with God through the shedding of blood. So he took each one of the clean animals, beasts, and birds that he had taken extra of on the ark, and he shed their blood. And he offered them up as sacrifices to the Lord by faith and in hope of the future Savior who would shed his blood for him. Abraham came to understand this truth as well. God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he established his covenant with them in the land of Canaan to be a God unto them and that they would be his people. But then God said to Abraham, I will give you the land of Canaan and to all of your children, even though you're very old, but he gave him a wonder child, Isaac. And then God said to Abraham, Now I want you to take your son, your only son, your beloved son, Isaac, and I want you to shed his blood. I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice to me. Carry him off to a mountain that I will show you. Slaughter him there. Offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. And Abraham obeyed. And he took Isaac to the Mount Moriah. And he lifted up his knife, and as he was about to shed the blood of his own son there on that altar, God stopped him. And God provided a ram that was caught in the bushes. And Abraham took that ram and shed the blood of that ram instead of the blood of Isaac. And it was the blood of the ram that flowed off of that altar on Mount Moriah, not the blood of Isaac. This was the blood that Jesus had in mind when he said, This cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. But Jesus had in mind especially the blood that began to flow in Egypt. When God led the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down to Egypt, and they became slaves there, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God raised up Moses and sent Moses to deliver his people from Egypt. He sent Moses 
to bring down judgments upon Pharaoh and Egypt when Pharaoh refused to let his people go. And God pounded Egypt with the ten plagues and destroyed the land utterly. And in the tenth plague, God said, I will destroy the firstborn son of every ungodly family, every wicked home throughout the whole land of Egypt. But he made a way of escape for his people. He told them to take a lamb, a perfect lamb without spot or blemish, and to shed its blood, and to smear that blood on the posts of their doors. And he promised that when I see that blood, I will pass over your houses, and I will spare your sons. And that's what he did. And hundreds, thousands of lambs were killed that night, the night of their deliverance, and the blood hurriedly spread and smeared over their doorposts, and they were spared through the shedding of the blood. And God said, now you must remember this night, once a year in the first month of every year, it will be the Passover feast. And you must, every family, take a lamb again, shed its blood in remembrance of that salvation. The blood began to flow out of Egypt. And it flowed as Israel went through the wilderness down to Mount Sinai. And having redeemed his people through the blood from Egypt, he established his covenant with them at Mount Sinai as a nation. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we read in Exodus 24 that Moses then shed the blood, more blood of animals, and collected that blood and sprinkled it over the people and sprinkled it over the book of the covenant and sprinkled it over all the furniture of the tabernacle and said, this is the blood of the covenant that God establishes with you. That's the blood Jesus had in mind when he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. He was alluding to all that blood that was shed in the old covenant. At Mount Sinai, God also established an ordinance that in the seventh month of every year, on the great day of atonement, which we read about in Hebrews 9, the high priest must shed the blood of a goat and take that blood into the tabernacle, into the deepest room in the tabernacle, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and sprinkle that blood over the mercy seat. All of this blood pointed to the fact that the people of God could only be in covenant with him through the shedding of blood, only through the death of a substitute, a perfect, innocent victim who would die in their place. Only through the making of atonement, the covering of their sins, could they be in a relationship of fellowship and friendship with God. And so Jesus now, in the upper room with his disciples, sitting around that table, celebrating the last Passover feast, takes the cup and says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Because through the shedding of his blood, we would be able to be in covenant with God. 
That wine, therefore, is a sign and seal of the blood of Jesus Christ as the only blood that has the power to make a true and eternal redemption and atonement for our sins. And Jesus would shed that blood the very next day. The blood, when he held that cup of wine, was still running through his veins. It was real human blood because he had taken on the human nature. He, the divine Son of God, had taken on human flesh and blood, so his blood flowed through his veins. And the very next day, he shed that blood. When he gave himself over to those wicked soldiers to place on his head and press on his scalp that crown of thorns, and when he gave his back to the smiters to lash him, with that brutal scourge and caused the stripes to be formed on his back and the blood to run down when he gave his blessed body to be nailed to the cross that he might fix thereon the handwriting of our sins. When he humbled himself to the deepest reproach and pains of hell on the tree of the cross where he was shedding his precious blood and he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, Why hast thou forsaken me? Because the shedding of his blood was not just the shedding of physical blood, but it was a sign too that pointed to his death. It pointed to his humiliation, to the deepest reproach and agony of hell. And as the Lord's Supper form puts it so beautifully, he confirmed by his death and shedding of his blood the new and eternal testament, that covenant of grace and reconciliation when he said, it is finished. And so, beloved, whenever we gather around the Lord's supper table and we pass that tray of those little cups of wine, that wine is a sign and seal of the blood of of Jesus Christ, the only blood that has power to atone for our sins and give us entrance into the covenant of grace for all eternity. There's more to say. What's interesting and perhaps puzzling at times is when we compare the different gospel accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Because if we look at Matthew's account in Matthew 26, there Jesus is reported to have said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. But if you turn to Luke and if you turn to 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus is reported to have said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's a bit puzzling. We don't need to puzzle ourselves too much about it. We can see that these are in perfect harmony with one another. And that perhaps our Lord said both. He also wants us to understand, you see, that the cup of wine in the Lord's Supper is not only a sign and seal of his blood, but it is also a sign and seal of the covenant itself. The covenant itself. 
And the Catechism captures that in question 79 when it asks, Why doth Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? He calls it both. He calls it his blood and he calls it the new covenant in his blood. What is the new covenant? The new covenant is the same as the old covenant in essence. The Reformed faith and tradition has always emphasized the unity of the covenants. That whereas God established a covenant of creation with Adam and Eve, and that was lost in the fall, from that point God has been establishing his covenant of grace from generation to generation. So that the old covenant and the new covenant are essentially the same covenant. The same as to their essence. Because the essence of the covenant is that marvelous relationship of sweet fellowship and communion that God establishes with us in which he promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that, beloved, is one of the precious truths that is part of the precious heritage that we have in our churches, too. That the essence of the covenant is this relationship of communion and friendship that God establishes with us, his people, to be our God and to take us to himself as his people. Now, the difference between the Old and New Covenant is that in the Old Covenant, God, as it were, kept a distance from his people. There was a relationship there, but he kept his distance from them. And he was known by his people as the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, the Lord of hosts, the great and the terrible God. He was known by his people as the one who dwells between the cherubim, those crafted, sculpted angels who sat upon the Ark of the Covenant, which rested in the most holy place of the tabernacle. And there was a veil between the most holy place and the holy place, and there was a door between the holy place and the court, and then the people lived outside. So God, in the Old Covenant, as it were, kept a distance from his people. They knew him as their God, but he is, he's far up in the heavens and he's far deep in the tabernacle. He dwells between the cherubim. He's the holy God, high and holy and righteous, far above us. And we cannot approach unto him because only the high priest may go into the most holy place once per year with the blood of atonement. Furthermore, in the old covenant, God kept a certain distance from his people because it was the dispensation of the law. God gave his laws at Mount Sinai to his people. These external laws, law upon law, precept upon precept, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, all these laws. And God said to his people, if you keep these commandments, you will be blessed. But if you break these commandments, you will be cursed. And when they broke the commandments, they felt the heavy, cursing, chastening, wrath, 
and hand of God upon them. That was the old covenant. They were under the law. The Christ had not come yet. The law was their schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. But in the new covenant, that great, glorious, majestic, holy God has come down to earth and come near to us. He's come so near to us that he has clothed himself in our human nature in the incarnation and was born a babe and lived in this same world that we live in. He came down to this world so that he could be near to us, so that we could see him face to face and have the closest, most intimate fellowship with him, God in the flesh. And he came into the world to redeem us from all those curses that he rained down seemingly upon his people in the old covenant. He came to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by shedding his blood on the cross to save us from our sins. And having ascended up into glory, he now pours out his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that whereas in the old covenant they had all these laws written, the letter of the law, now there is the Spirit in the heart poured out. And we know God now, not just as this distant, glorious King, but as our Father who loves us through Jesus Christ, His Son. That's the new covenant. Now Jesus takes that cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. That is, this wine is not only a sign and seal of my blood. We get that. That's what we usually think of. The red, the richly colored red wine reminds us of his blood. But that same wine is a sign and seal of the rich, luxuriant blessings of the new covenant. Because wine, after all, is a symbol of the joy of fellowship. The joy that is experienced in the context of fellowship. Wine, in our day and age, has almost become a common thing, almost as common as any other drink. We live in prosperous days, and the wine flows. But we do well to remember a few things about wine. Unlike water, which is a drink that we must consume every day and in large quantities for the health of our bodies. Nobody can deny that. We have to drink water, lots of water. Every day we ought to be drinking water if we want to have good health. We don't need to drink wine every day. And we must not drink wine in large quantities ever. Because God actually forbids us to do that. He actually tells us in his word, I forbid you to drink wine in large quantities or any other kind of alcohol because drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is the idolatry of wine. 
It is the taking of wine and twisting it, perverting it, and misusing it, and making it your God. And he forbids us to be enslaved to wine, to be addicted to wine, so that we need it every day and we have to have it. Water is something we need every day, but not wine. Water is a common drink. Wine is a special drink. Wine is a drink that symbolizes the joy of fellowship. We ought to remember the proverb, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And we ought to remember the warning of Isaiah 5, verse 22. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Some Christians have become enslaved to wine in their lives and they need to repent and they need to turn from that slavery. Some Christians have been enslaved to wine or other kinds of alcohol in their past, and they have repented, and they have become sober, but now, because of their past, as a consequence, they can no longer even drink the thimble full of wine in the Lord's Supper, lest it tempt them to fall back into their sin. So they can only take the bread and not the wine in the Lord's Supper. So, beloved, the, the Scriptures Exhort us, don't be deceived by wine, lest that happen to you, that you become such a one who cannot even take the wine of the Lord's Supper. Wine is a good gift of God and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, because it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. First Timothy. Wine is a good gift. But wine is not a common drink. Wine is a special drink. Wine is a sign of the joy of fellowship, the luxurious, rich fellowship that people enjoy as they sit around a table together. That's the context that we ought to think of with wine. Not, not an individual with a flask sitting off in the corner somewhere drinking down his wine because he needs it. No, wine is that drink that we enjoy together as we sit around the table together, having fellowship together, enjoying a banquet, a feast, a celebration together. And as we have a glass of wine together, it can actually enhance our experience of fellowship, our conversation, our communion with each other. Psalm 104 says that God gives us wine that makes glad the heart of man. Wine makes glad the heart of man. Water doesn't do that. Water quenches your thirst. But wine makes glad the heart of man. Now, think of all that symbolism of wine. And Jesus says, this cup of wine in the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of the new covenant. The wine is a symbol of the covenant. That is, it is a sign of the rich blessings that are ours in the covenant. The rich blessings that are laid out on the table of God's covenant as a banquet of salvation and joy, fellowship with God that will never end. 
So the Lord's Supper has bread and wine. The Catechism asks us, why does Christ call the bread his body, and why does he call the wine his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? Not because the bread changes into his body, not because the wine changes into his blood, but because the bread is a sign and seal by which Christ teaches us something. The bread teaches us. Just as we eat bread and it nourishes our body as we sit around that banquet table of the Lord, so his crucified body nourishes our souls unto everlasting life. But especially the bread gives us a promise, a pledge, a guarantee by which he assures us that just as I am given this bread and I eat this bread, I, 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 I am nourished unto everlasting life. Not just everybody else, but me. It's a promise that is personal to me, that Christ nourishes my, my soul with his crucifixion and sufferings and death. And that, therefore, I have a seat at the table of God, the table of his covenant. Not because of anything I've done, but through Christ, through his broken body, I have a seat in the covenant of grace. And then the wine. When it comes to the wine, he is teaching us, as we've seen, that just as wine makes glad the heart of man, and is a symbol of the joy of fellowship, so also... The wine of the Lord's Supper points us to the fellowship and joy that is ours with God in his covenant. When Jesus instituted the supper, he actually said, I'm not going to drink this wine anymore until I come into the kingdom of heaven. And what he meant to say was, when we all get there, it's going to be like a great celebration, a banquet of wine that will last for all eternity. Not the way the drunkard might dream of that, an eternity of drinking. No. But the way the sober, believing child of God thinks of wine as a symbol of fellowship with God's people and with God. And there's an assurance that as I am given this little cup and I drink it, that sweet joy of fellowship is going to be mine and not just others. Finally, I said that the word for covenant can also be translated testament. In God's covenant, he also gives a testament. Now when we hear the word testament, we probably think of the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. We think of the word testament as if it means part one and part two. The Old Testament is part one and New Testament is part two, and we often use the word in that sense. But that's not actually the meaning of the word. We ought to think here of a last will and testament. We ought to think of a man who owns an estate or who owns possessions and properties and he goes to his lawyer and he draws up a last will and testament. And in that document, he expresses the recipients 
of all of his possessions when he dies. That's a testament. That's what we ought to think of here. And the crucial thing, as we read in Hebrews 9, is that the testator must die before the inheritance can be received. So in the Old Covenant, God made a testament with his people. He made a testament to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the children of Israel. And in that testament, God expressed his will to give as an inheritance to his people the whole land of Canaan. I express to you my will that upon death, the whole land of Canaan will be given to you as a free inheritance. And as the apostle makes clear in the passage we read, that Old Testament too was not dedicated without blood. Having made and expressed his will and testament to his people, what followed was the shedding of a lot of blood. And as we saw there at Mount Sinai, Moses shed the blood of many animals and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, or the, of the covenant. And that word can also mean testament. This is the blood of the testament that God is making with you. God's making a promise to you that through this blood, he will give you that inheritance. So that all points to the New Testament, of course. And Jesus now says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. It's a symbol of my blood. It's a symbol of covenant joy and fellowship. And finally, it's a symbol of the New Testament. In other words, by this little cup of wine, God makes a promise to you that he has written you into his will and testament, that he promises to bequeath to you upon the death of the testator an inheritance in the heavenly Canaan. And the one who must die for us to receive that inheritance, of course, is God himself. God is the testator. God is the one who made the testament. God is our father. We are his children. God is the one who promises to give us that inheritance in the heavenly Canaan. God, therefore, must first die. And that's why God became a man. So that as the testator, as the mediator of the New Testament, he might shed his blood, his own blood. He might die that we might receive the promise of that eternal inheritance. So we read in Hebrews 9, verses 15 and 16, Christ is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. The cup is a sign and seal to you and to me and to every believer, to every child of God, that God promises to give us an inheritance in the heavenly Canaan, world without end, to dwell with him in his covenant there in paradise, in that place where there will be no more sin, 
and no more death and no more suffering. And we will dwell with God enjoying the blessings of his banquet for all eternity. Amen. Heavenly Father, we can only express our gratitude for such a marvelous promise. We thank thee for this holy supper that we are able to celebrate in remembrance and in anticipation, looking back to the blood that was shed for us and looking forward to the covenant testament blessings that thou hast in store for us in the heavenly Canaan. Lord, ever lead us onward in our lives to that great day when we will receive our inheritance. All this we pray in Jesus' name.